Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford, Woking and Aldershot in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. Thanks Adam. How are we doing? <clears throat> On uh, the day of Pentecost, the Apostle Peter stood up before the crowd accused of drunkenness and uh, offered an impassioned, spirit-empowered speech to try and explain to the people what was going on. And the first thing he does is he reaches inside and he finds a passage from the Old Testament book of Joel. And he says this, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. As I said, this is Peter trying to explain to the assembled crowd what was happening, the spirit of God filling people before their very eyes. And what he then does is he links what is happening to the very recent death and resurrection of the man, Jesus, mere weeks prior to this. And he then goes on to quote uh, the words of David from Psalm 16. He says, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices my body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. This text up until that point had been understood to be written by David about himself. And yet in light of what had happened with Jesus, Peter was offering a reinterpretation of this text. And his logic was very simple. David was dead. David's tomb was a, a well-known location for them. His body had not risen up. And so when they'd seen what had happened with Jesus, they started to reinterpret what was happening in the Old Testament. We say Old Testament, of course, to them, it was just scripture. He then goes on to quote from Psalm 110, further pointing to the exaltation of Jesus. His speech on Pentecost is filled with explicit quotes from scripture. In Acts 7, a little bit later on, we read about the Apostle Stephen, a man that we are told to be full of grace and power, who spoke with wisdom and with the Spirit. And he's going around doing what Peter did, like reinterpreting Scripture in light of what um, had happened with Jesus. And so he's dragged before the Sanhedrin, which is the highest court, and he's charged with blaspheming both the temple and the law of Moses. Now, Stephen knew in that moment, if he stayed true to what he had been preaching, his violent death lay moments ahead of him. And yet we read that he was calm and his face actually appeared like that of an angel. He then gives a long speech, one of the longest in the New Testament, again trying to explain what was happening in their time. And in doing so, he quotes extensively from Genesis, from Exodus, from Deuteronomy, from Amos, and from Isaiah. Now correct me if I'm wrong, 
I don't think he was unrolling scrolls before the Sanhedrin. I think he knew this stuff. And I also don't think, you know, of course he was filled with the Spirit. I don't think the Spirit of God sort of put him into some sort of trance and just started speaking scripture that he had never read before. I think the Spirit gave him courage, but I think Stephen knew this stuff inside deeply already. The book of Acts then ends with the Apostle Paul under house arrest in Rome, teaching and preaching about Jesus, seeing people becoming followers of the way, but still seeing many reject what he was saying. And at the very end of Acts, if you look in your Bible, you'll see that Paul quotes from Isaiah chapter 6. Go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing, but never understanding, etc. The passage from Isaiah. And then, of course, in the writings left to us by Paul, which make up a huge chunk of the rest of the New Testament, Scripture just drips from everything that he says, right? There, there are, of course, many explicit quotations, but there's also even more implicit allusions that we are actually, they're kind of lost on us because we're not intimately familiar with the Old Testament in the way that someone like Paul was. This stuff was very deeply inside. And all of these people, so uh, Peter, Stephen, Paul, were modeling what they knew, of course, to be true of Jesus himself. The four gospels paint Jesus as many different things, but one thing they all consistently do is show him to be someone who knew the scriptures like the back of his hand. Uh, Some of the more well-known examples include when he stands up in the synagogue and he unrolls the Isaiah scroll. I like to think he did that just for dramatic effect. I think he, he probably knew it off by heart, but it looks better to unroll the scroll, doesn't it? Wish we had scrolls. And he says, the spirit of God is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. You, you, know, you know the passage. His temptation in the wilderness, three times Satan tries to tempt him. And three times, what does Jesus do? He quotes scripture. He could have presumably done something much more miraculous and impressive and powerful. But all he does is speak the words that have come from the mouth of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, he says, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's how he fights temptation in the wilderness. And then at, his, at the moment of his death on the cross, Jesus again quotes, this time from Psalm 22. Now, why am I going to such lengths to show you how much Old Testament there is in the New Testament? Well, right from the start of Christianity, including, or perhaps especially by its founder, himself, scripture has played an absolutely crucial role. If you look at the picture that's going to come up on the screen now, this is a visual depiction of over 63,000 internal references within the Bible, like self-references. Of course, some of those are explicit, like the ones that I have just talked about, but lots and lots of those are allusions that perhaps only scholars who read Hebrew and Greek can fully appreciate and understand. But suffice to say, that's a pretty incredible stat, isn't it? And that's a conservative estimate. There's Some people would say there's actually many more, but 63,000 sounds like a pretty good place to start to me. And uh, you can see the line in the middle at the bottom depicts between the Old and the New Testaments, and then the color indicates that the distance between the references. So time and time again, and bear in mind that the Bible was composed over a very long period of time, but time and again, the people of God are a people of Scripture. They constantly come back to it. They constantly quote from it. They use it to understand what is unfolding, what is happening. They use it to shape their worldview. And so in this series so far, we've been looking at the hallmarks of the church. We've looked at being a people who are empowered and filled with the Spirit of God. 
um, being a people who are full of love for one another, who, who have cultivated hearts that genuinely know how to love others well. We've talked about people who know how to pray boldly. And last week, we thought about what it means to see lives changed by sharing the gospel. Today, our session is standing in the story. And very simply, I just want to remind us of the call to be a people of Scripture, a people saturated with the words of God. I'm sure uh, many of us watched the coronation of King Charles earlier this year. I half watched it. I was wrestling a three-year-old at the same time. So uh, some of the details are a little fuzzy. But I do remember being struck um, by one part in particular, the first gift. Does anybody remember what the first gift that is given to him is? Coronation Bible, right? This very um, luxurious, uh, impressive looking Bible that was specially made for his coronation. And it struck me that the words that were spoken to him as it was presented to him. We present you with this book, the most valuable thing that this world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this book, that keep and do the things contained in it. For these are the words of eternal life, able to make you wise and happy in this world, nay, wise unto salvation, and so happy forevermore, through faith which is in Christ Jesus, to whom be glory forever. Amen. It's very powerful, isn't it? Yeah, we need to bring back the word nay. Um, I think it's got a very sort of Book of Common Prayer vibe about it, that excerpt, doesn't it? But that part in particular of the coronation ceremony really stuck with me. Um, it might surprise you to know I haven't actually been alive for any other coronations. Um, so that was, it was all new to me. And um, I just thought it was, it was incredible in the midst of this you know, very grand ceremony. There's gold and there's all kinds of you know, impressive stuff going on. It's this book that they say this is the most valuable gift that this world affords. It might be a surprise then for us to realize that biblical literacy has been on the decline for some time, not just in the culture generally, which is probably quite obvious by now, but actually within the church as well. Should I back that up by reading to you from a study? Okay, here we go. So, so it starts off by talking about, you know, they, they sort of surveyed children and, you know, if they could tell the difference between what was a Bible story and not a Bible story, etc. And it was not very um, uh, encouraging. It then goes on to say, in like fashion, many parents find it hard to distinguish the plot lines of Bible stories from Hollywood blockbusters. 54% thinking that this, this is great. 54% thinking that the storyline in Hunger Games may have originated in the Bible, with 46% saying the same thing about the Da Vinci Code, 34% about Harry Potter, and 27% about Superman. wonder what translation they've been reading. Um, on the other hand, 46% did not recognize the plot line of Noah's Ark as a Bible story, with 31% ignorant of the derivation of David and Goliath, 30% of Adam and Eve, and 27% of the Good Samaritan. Older parents, the over 55s, now, before you over 55 start to get smug, this is 10 years old, so only the over 65s are allowed to have a little glint of smugness right now. The over 55s, or should I say 65s, were found to be appreciably better than those younger at differentiating between Bible stories and Hollywood films. Well done, you. Reflecting the fact that they were more likely to have engaged with Bible stories deeply when at school. Uh, side note, parents in Wales were also more knowledgeable than those elsewhere in Britain, so congratulations if you're Welsh. 
Notwithstanding their own relative ignorance, this part, this is what I'm getting to, many parents whose children had been exposed to the Bible stories continued to recognize their importance. This was especially so for professing Christians. 59% of him viewed the Bible as providing values for a good life. It presents it like that's a good thing. I'm like, where are these other 41% of Christian parents that don't think that's the case? Let me talk to these people. Collectively, you know, and, and that's, that's 10 years old. There's loads more you know, recent stuff done, particularly in the States. But actually, since the pandemic, particularly, um, the reading of the Bible has dropped substantially um, compared to what it had been previously. But it has been on the decline in our country as well as others for quite a long time now. And so collectively, we are in danger of losing the ability to really read and to embrace this book. How can we be a people of Scripture like the apostles were, like Jesus himself was, if we don't know how to engage with it? And a little caveat at this point, to be clear, we, we don't worship the Bible. We don't venerate the book, right? But as Christians, we want to be like Jesus. We want to be with Jesus, and we want to do the things that he did. And how are we going to know most accurately what kind of things Jesus said and did through the Bible, Okay, so we don't worship it. It's, it's, it's a book, but it is a very special book. It's the word that God has given to us, and it is the most full revelation that we have of who Jesus Christ is. And so in the time remaining, I want to provoke your thinking around, firstly, how you conceive of the Bible, and secondly, how you engage with it in your life. Um, and a little footnote is that at 1 p.m. on Tuesday, if you have a pocketbook or an appointment book, you know, um, old-fashioned, or if you have your Google Calendar, 1 p.m. on Tuesday, um, I'm going to just host a little session in Founders for an hour. If anybody wants to just pick up from what we talk about today and um, go a little deeper, I'd love to see you there. I'm not seeing any appointment books being brought out, but that's, uh, <laughs> that's all right. <clears throat> Adam, we can just go for coffee if nobody turns up. So firstly, how do you conceive of the Bible? Do I have permission to speak freely? Yes, okay. I'm being very quiet. Um, I like to think it's because of the gravitas of what we're discussing. <laughs> this is a huge question. How do you conceive of the Bible? We could easily spend this whole time talking about just the incalculable influence that this, the Bible has had on our culture and on our civilization, so much so that even the very intellectual foundations of something like atheism are built on scriptural Christian principles. You know, we are swimming in the water of Christianity, even if we do not realize it. The fact that we find something like the gladiatorial games of the Roman Empire abhorrent, that's because we've been Christianized, okay? So it has saturated and formed our civilization in a way that is really impossible to actually fully appreciate. But it's a very difficult thing to start to engage with because Scripture has been used in all kinds of things, in all kinds of ways over the centuries. Scripture has been used to make women subordinate and to emancipate them. Scripture has been used to justify violence and to condemn it. Scripture has been used to endorse political power and also to denounce it. Scripture has been used to justify slavery and to abolish it. Martin Luther King Jr. was a man saturated with the stories of the Bible from a young age. One of the reasons his speeches were so powerful when he gave them and are still so resonant today is because they are filled with scripture, particularly the prophetic material of the Old Testament. 
how are we to make sense of this? It feels like a charged thing, doesn't it? It feels complicated to approach. And we have extremes even within the church. One extreme now is kind of total deconstruction where the Bible has been dissected and, you know, because of the way that we want historical works to be or uh, the way that we look for information. Now, the Bible has basically been reduced to just a bunch of texts that are, yeah, they've got some nice poetry in them, but that's kind of it. It doesn't really have anything else to say to us. And perhaps on an, another extreme, we have what you could call biblical fundamentalism, which takes a very black and white view of the Bible. There's not really any room for nuance, and often that view is used to subjugate others and can cause all kinds of harm. You have these extremes, and we all are probably somewhere in the middle, and we maybe lean one way or the other. And what I want to do at the minute is just try to provoke you to think around where you might be at the moment. So we must find a path through the extremes. I want to offer three thoughts that I think are really helpful as you begin to think about how you conceive of Scripture. The first is this. The Bible is ancient. I want you to think for a moment of the year 5,000, okay, 3,000 years approximately ahead of us. What do we do in the year 5,000? What kind of food do we eat? What kind of clothes do we wear? What kind of homes do we live in? What kind of music do we listen to? If you think you have any idea, let me tell you, you are wrong. You have absolutely no idea. It's so far away. I mean, 30 years ago, we didn't have Wi-Fi or iPhones, for goodness sake. Think how much the world has changed in 30 years. Now try to track that out over 3,000 years. Now become cognizant of the fact that that is approximately the same distance away from us as King David. Okay? He lived approximately 3,000 years ago. Now, of course, history is different from the future. We can know some things about, you know, maybe what they wore, what they uh, ate, all of those kind of things. But it's very difficult for us to really step into the worldview of someone that lived that long ago, no matter how hard we try and no matter how good our historians get. These people were different from us. The way they thought of everything would have been very different from the way we think about it. And so why do I say this? Well, we must respect the distance And we must approach scripture with humility because it is so far removed from our world. It's like, um, no, I'm not going to do it. I'll run out of time. Don't worry. We'll keep going. Um, So we must approach it with humility and we must be aware, like what modern assumptions and worldviews and biases are we bringing and reading into scripture that they just didn't have any conception of when they wrote it. So we must approach it with humility given its great distance from us historically. The second thing that I think is helpful as we begin to conceive of, of Scripture is to say that it is ambiguous. Ambiguous might sound like a loaded word, but it just means something that is open to more than one interpretation. Okay? If you buy, I don't know, an alarm clock and you have the instruction manual and it says insert two AA batteries, full stop, insert two AAA batteries, full stop, but there's only space for two batteries, that's not helpful. That's not what you want an instruction manual to do. You need unambiguous, clear instructions about what to do. And that is not how the Bible works. Um, We can see this very clearly if we look at Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. Check this out. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. Full stop. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. Interesting, right? Now, if the Bible is just an instruction manual, it's black and white, it's, you know, it says it and we do it, 
this doesn't help us. This doesn't make sense. But what we have to become is aware of the fact that the Bible is doing something different to that. And it's trying to teach us to be wise. Proverbs, of course, is a book of wisdom. And so what's happening here is Scripture is trying to invite us into a conversation where we become the kind of people who are discerning and wise. And so there are some circumstances you will find yourself in where you, you should just stay quiet and let the person show themselves to be a fool. We've all been there, haven't we? Some of you are thinking right now. Um, and there are some circumstances that we will be in where actually no we need to say something, we need to stop this person, otherwise they're going to cause more damage. Do you, do you see there's a deeper layer going on here of what scripture is trying to invite us into? And so there is a degree of ambiguity. It's not a simple instruction manual. You know, a third of the Bible is poetry, which by definition is not clear cut. Um, Jesus himself spoke very poetically, like the last shall be first and the first shall be last. That's something that you have to kind of take pause and wonder what that might mean it's not a very simple instruction that you just follow out it's inviting you into something deeper and I think the third and final thing I'm going to share for now about how we conceive of scripture it's ancient it's ambiguous it's also diverse and by diverse what I mean is different voices coexist within the bible an obvious example being the fact that there are four gospels each painting a different portrait of Jesus so the Bible is not a book that just re simply reflects one point of view. It records a conversation going on between God and his people over 1,300 or so years, approximately from the oldest text to the newest text. Uh, an, an interesting way that we can again see this clearly is the, the laws given by God to Moses on Mount Sinai recorded in the book of Exodus. There's, a, there's particular laws around how you treat slaves. And in Exodus, the first time we come across these laws, there's a sort of special alliance made for male slaves. Um, I'll not go into the, the detail of it. It's Exodus 21, 1 to 11, if you want to look it up. But then in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is just sort of a recap of the first four books of the Torah and, and, and sums them up and sort of gives them a slightly different spin. The, the laws are again restated. But interestingly, that same law, and bear in mind the Bible presents this as if both are from God to Moses on Sinai. The second time we come across these laws on slavery, that special alliance applies to male and female slaves. And so you see the people of God actually having an ongoing conversation with what is happening. Does anyone feel confused or slightly overwhelmed at this point? No? Okay. Good. Woking felt very overwhelmed by this point. Um, <laughs> I, just, I just put words in their mouth. They were fine. So it's important that we, you know, not everybody is, has the time and the inclination to go deep into all of these various details, but I think it's really important for all of us as Christians to have an awareness of some of the complexities inherent in the Bible. Okay, if we're going to use this to, uh, to sort of come up with moral and ethical framework for, for living in the 21st century, for example, we have to be able to give a really good account of how we actually approach this book, how we conceive of it. Okay, we can't just apply a very simplistic black and white framework to it. It will not hold water, not just when we're talking to others, but for ourselves. Eventually, you will come across something like maybe the passages that I've shown that force you to have a different conception of it. So that's the first part. How do you conceive of Scripture? And so what I want to do now is just reflect a little bit in, in, in the face of this kind of complexity and the fact that it can feel a bit like overwhelming. It's just to talk a little bit about how we might engage with it. 
Well, I want to suggest we just have to do what Jesus did. Consume it. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The analogy is simple. What do you do with bread? You you literally put it inside your body. And then you go on, you have sustenance to go and live your life until the next meal. And then you do it again. And I think that's how we should approach scripture. We learn how to consume it like we consume food. There's some language in the Psalms that I think uh, kind of elucidates on this a little bit further. I can't believe I just said the word elucidates. Um, So not a person of my generation. Um, Still a tail end chuckle there. I'll just let it play out. The Psalms are, are filled with language that I think is very helpful for this. Psalm 1, we read, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, does not stand in the way of sinners, does not sit in the seat of scoffers, but on his law he meditates day and night. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. Now, we have to go a layer deeper because meditates is a bit of an unhelpful word. In 2023 in the UK, meditate is most often sort of, um, we think of Buddhist meditation, right? We think of kind of humming, maybe you know, sitting and emptying our minds. That's what meditation is. That is not what the Hebrew word here means. It's the very opposite. It actually means to fill yourself. The, the literal translation of this word meditate, the Hebrew word is haga. I love this word. And it means both um, thought and action. And, and it means to murmur or to mutter. And so someone who actually goes about their life muttering, murmuring the word of God Okay, someone who meditates on it, chews on it, murmurs it day and night. Another helpful um, idea we find in Psalm 119, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Hidden here means what it says. It's hidden. It's the same word that Moses' mother, she hid him, right? To keep him safe. It carries with it the connotation of treasure, like something that you put away to keep it safe. How do we become a people who have hidden the word of God in our hearts, just again, as we have seen the apostles and Jesus being people who did that. And this is where we bump into one of the limitations of our day and age. Does anyone know what I mean by like choice paralysis? Okay. You will experience it very quickly if you open Netflix and try to find something to watch because there's about 4 million programs being produced at any one time at the moment. If you want to buy some curtain hooks, just go onto Amazon. It's a simple matter of sorting through about 617 variations of curtain hooks before you'll find just the right one for you. But this is, a, this is a very much a symptom of our age of abundance. We just have so much choice and so many options, and it can feel quite debilitating. I, I definitely feel it, because I kind of, I'm one of those people that like, I take in a lot of information. You know, like introverts, kind of, if someone is talking to me, I saw this beautiful diagram once. If someone's talking to me, I kind of hear the birds chirping, the plane flying overhead, the cars going by, and the ball being bunched off the wall. Whereas an extrovert is just like focused on the person, and they, like, everything else gets blanked out. I'm the, I'm the former, and so I, I get overstimulated by stuff, and so I find like all the information, all the options a little bit debilitating. And so how, how are we to be the kind of people that hide the word of God in our heart or chew on it, meditate on it when we're faced with so much noise? Well, I want to suggest we, 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 we kind of just pick something. We know how to commit to something. Um, 
you know, reading through the Bible in a year is, is, is great to do, I think, if you, if you can manage that every so often. But I don't think it's the best way to go about this because it's very difficult to go adequately deep into something when you're trying to get through it so quickly. Like, I don't know if you've ever found like Thursday morning, you're just trying to get to work and you're like reading through half of Jeremiah. That's not how scripture is meant to be read. You will not be the kind of person who hides the word of God in your heart. So instead you must start small and start slowly and learn how to store the word of God in your heart. Well, I had a thought this week, it's, it maybe doesn't make sense to anyone else, but it makes sense to me. But one of the ways I think of the Bible is like an access point to reality. And so who knows, right, when the, when the children step through the wardrobe in Narnia, they step into an imaginary world, but how much more vivid and real is the world that they step into than the one that they left behind, right? It's, it's, it's the real world. Now, please hear me in this analogy. I'm not saying scripture is like a fictitious world that we step into, but it is like we're stepping into a different reality, one that is in many ways more vivid and more real than our daily lives, just the humdrum of going about living. And T.S. Eliot, the poet, has this beautiful line. He says, humankind cannot bear very much reality. And it struck me as like, I wonder if that's why sometimes I find it like I can't deal with like the whole Old Testament and what you, you, I have to pick one little piece and I have to learn to chew on it and meditate on it and hide it in my heart. Um, I shared this, um, I'm just going to have to name this because you'll, you'll say I'm just reusing material at this point. Um, but I, I didn't do this talk, the, the talk earlier. Does anyone remember the talk I did on memorizing Psalms? Okay, I'm going to repeat myself a little bit here, but I think it's worth it. Um, I didn't do it in Woking and I didn't want to cheat them out of it. Um, but Dallas Willard, again, who I um, try to sneak into every sermon, um, doing it again, um, he has a book called Renovation of the Heart where he sort of extensively looks at how we change as people over time, like how we form good habits. And he looks at sort of every possible facet of our living from our bodies to our minds, to our hearts, to our souls. Um, and on the, on the whole subject of, of transforming our ideas, um, Dallas Willard said this, the most obvious thing we can do is to memorize and turn over in our minds key portions of scripture. This is the primary discipline for the thought life. He goes on to say, not just odd verses, but longer passages. We need to know them like the back of our hand. And this is where I hear this beautiful sort of fatherly voice encouraging us. If you think this is impossible for you, think again. You can remember all sorts of things and you can remember scripture too. As you do, your mind will be filled with light and your life will be reoriented around God because you're choosing to focus on him and are spending effort on this permanently worthwhile activity. The challenge for me today is very simple. Perhaps you already have a well-established habit of reading the Bible and engaging with Scripture, but see today as an invitation to go further. How do you become someone who hides the Word of God in your heart? How do you become someone who haga, right, who mutters the Word of God in your life? Perhaps you don't have a well-established habit of reading Scripture already, and so today is a call to begin Right? One of the, the beauty, like the, the, the other side of the coin, is that we have so many options to engage with Scripture now. So if you would prefer to listen to it, if you'd prefer to watch amazing videos on YouTube with animation, any translation that might suit you, there, there's so many options that there's something that will work for everyone. Just don't get distracted by all the other options once you've picked one that does work for you. And so we need to be aware of the complexity of Scripture 
you don't have to go and get a degree in any of that stuff, but I, just, I think it's really important that we have an understanding at this point in history, like there is a lot that has gone before us and we need to be aware of how charged this issue can be. We need to be aware of how fraught with kind of complexity it can be so that we are better able to conceive of how we actually engage with the Bible, but we should not let that put us off, okay? I've spoken to people who just feel like they're so discouraged by all of that complexity and they, they don't want to, you know, perpetuate any other wrongdoing. They just kind of don't really know how to engage with Scripture. So I want to encourage you, we have to find this middle road, okay? Not being put off by the complexity, but being the kind of people just like Jesus and the apostles whose lives are just saturated with the words of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And of course, God speaks to us in other ways. We believe that very firmly here at Emmaus. But the Bible is the main source that we have. It is, it is where we read the words of God that have sustained his people through many centuries now. And so in, in an age of declining biblical literacy, in an age where we are struggling more and more to focus and to have the attention span to engage with something like Scripture, let us be a people who are marked by Scripture, who hide it in our hearts, because that is how we will become people who pray more boldly, become people who have a heart for hospitality in a more deep way, people better able to know the will of the Spirit of God because we see what he has done before and we fill ourselves with it, and people who know how to share the gospel in a more powerful way because we filled ourselves with these words. We're not just making it up on our own terms. We're filling ourselves with this time-proven words of God. Can I pray for us? wonder if you'd like to open your hands. Spirit of God, we, we thank you so much for this great gift that you have given us in scripture. We thank you that it has been a source of comfort, of inspiration to Christians throughout the centuries. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us something that requires us to willingly step into with intentionality, something that actually requires of us to engage everything we have, something that requires us to wrestle and to grapple with it. It's not simplistic, God. You've given us something so much richer than a rule book. And so we pray, Lord, as a church, as we're going through this series, as we're looking at the hallmarks of your church, would you remind us of the call to be a people of scripture, a people of the book, remembering that it's because we love you, Jesus, because you are the word of God. But we thank you that you have given us this record of your stories and your parables and your sermons and all of the tradition that has gone before you, Jesus. We thank you for this incredible gift. Pray that you would help us to know how to go deeper in it. Pray that you'd help us to become a people who commit it into our 